Welcome to TP Talks, PwC's Global Transfer Pricing Podcast Series, where PwC professionals share their perspectives on key transfer pricing developments. This podcast episode is a follow-up to our December 2018 podcast, covering a review of U.S. transfer pricing. We again will be covering a range of topics, including the Advanced Pricing and Mutual Agreement Program and the FCD model, tax reform, tariffs, U.S. controversy, and digitization. My name is Dana Hart, and joining me today, I have Paige Hill, PwC's U.S. Transfer Pricing Leader, Chris Desmond, our go-to-market global trade services leader, and co-leader of our value chain transformation practice. Also joining me is Joseph Kavuliak, a partner in our national transfer pricing practice based in Washington, D.C., and Lily Kazemi, a transfer pricing director with our national tax practice, also based in Washington, D.C. Lily will be moderating our podcast today, so Lily, over to you. Thank you, Dana. Similar to our previous podcast, we are going to give you a top five countdown of areas we think our clients should be focused on and provide you with updates and new insights. Let's get started. Number five on the list is the APMA program and the functional cost diagnostic model that was released earlier this year. Joseph, what should U.S. multinationals know about this model and how can they expect it to appear in the APA process? So the objective that APMA is uh, pursuing here is to better understand contributions made by the control taxpayers to the proposed cover transaction. So on the conceptual side, Really, the focus is on identifying activities that could create valuable intangibles, which of the transacting parties uh, is exercising control over economically significant risks. And uh, and they are really questioning whether the one-sided tests that would be applied under the CPM, TNMM methods uh, would be applicable to some of the fact patterns that they are seeing in their portfolio. So this is really similar mindset to what OECD applied in the BEPS initiative that focus on aligning profit with the functions that create value. Uh, so examples of the contributions that APMA is looking at, uh, whether the parties, both parties may contribute, are uh, activities that may create manufacturing IP, such as R&D, engineering, or marketing IP, such as marketing, advertising, and, and related management control functions. On the execution side, the functional cost diagnostics model or FCD model is really just a residual profit split model that allocates income or loss, the system income or loss between uh, transacting parties in two steps. Step one would allocate profits to routine contributions, again, using the uh, framework of the CPM TNMM method. And step two then would allocate the residual profit or loss uh, in proportion to And the model itself is using capitalized intangible development costs incurred by the respective transacting parties. Uh, I I would like to point out, this is just an observation, that uh, the model as designed and published has a conceptual bias to over-allocate residual to the longer-lived intangible assets and uh, similarly under-allocate it to the shorter-lived intangible assets. So if, if you are going to use that model be uh, cautious and understand that uh, this is not necessarily the model that APMA at the end will be agreeing the uh, allocation of the income. It's the starting point, 
and obviously depends on the facts and contributions by the parties, but also the mechanics of the model uh, would need to be adjusted to ensure that a proper allocation income uh, is observed. Joseph, a follow-up question. Is the functional cost diagnostic model now a required part of the APA process? How does its application arise? It will very likely be asked from APMA to the taxpayer to complete this analysis and prepare such a model once the submission is submitted with the APMA. So be mindful that for any new submissions, this likely can be a request depending on the facts of the, of the transaction and of the activities of the transacting parties. Thanks for that clarification, Joseph. Paige, I want to come to you regarding number four on our list, which is the continuing proliferation of tax reform. Can you elaborate on this for our listeners, especially on the global angle? Thanks, Lily. We've been so focused on U.S. tax reform <laughs> since it happened at the end of 2017 that um, you know, people need to be aware there's a lot of changes happening on the global level. Uh, we've had certain types of uh, changes, most of which are, are really geared at you know, solidifying uh, individual countries' own tax base, uh, broadening their tax net, and looking to tax what are perceived as abusive types of arrangements um, and structures. So, you know, we have types of legislation, for example, in the UK and Australia with the DPT and, and the MAL, which are looked at taxing locally income that is you know, perhaps not taxed elsewhere. We've had anti-tax avoidance directives, or ATAD, in Europe, which has really pushed through and, and, and required countries there to adopt legislation, again, aimed at, you know, where perceived as tax avoidance uh, structures and transactions. Um, and we've had tax reform in Asia. We've had tax reform in Japan that has impacted some of the transfer pricing rules there and, and elsewhere. And Swiss tax reform, which is impactful for a lot of um, our clients that have focused on Switzerland as a central part of their operational planning. And so there's transition rules that are going to go into effect uh, in Switzerland, but, but that does have a big impact in terms of bringing up the higher corporate rate there and eliminating the specific type of preferred regimes. So I think when you, when you look at all of that in combination, uh, and some of these factors are also focused on trying to tax income that may be getting favorable treatment in the U.S., so some of it's in response to U.S. tax reform. And, and I think we'll see changes continue. But what it means to me is when you think about your transfer pricing policy, you need to have a, a really global view on what, what your policy is, but you need to think about how to execute it locally and the impact uh, locally and how it will be taxed and perceived locally. So there, there is some, a lot more nuance around understanding the local laws and regulations relative to just what your global policy is. So I, I think having that, that global view with a local mindset is extremely important now. Thank you, Paige. Speaking of transfer pricing policies and taking a global view, making the list again at number three is tariffs. As we know, this development changes every day. Chris, can you give us an update on Mexico and China tariffs? What transfer pricing issues do clients need to consider? Lily, I'm checking Twitter right now, and I don't think there's any major changes today. But basically, it's a day-by-day -day change that we sometimes see in the environment. And it's kind of crazy, the roller coaster we've had 
in the last 12 months. Um, in fact, let's kind of kind of start off with Mexico. Mexico is one where late this spring, uh, Trump was not happy with the progress related to the border control, and he threatened to impose tariffs ranging from 5 to 25% starting uh, in, in summer. It was postponed last minute, and it had a 90-day reprieve. But what this did is it caused a big controversy in the global environment. And to Paige's earlier comment, this is where companies, where they're taking the global view, need to not only look at a global view from a tax perspective, a transfer pricing perspective, but a tariff perspective, because tariffs are impacting companies above the line. And the Mexico scare was one that really was interesting because there are so many U.S. multinationals that have a footprint in Mexico, and the questions of whether or not their maquiladora would be charged from a tariff perspective on the implied value of goods coming across the border, what that would mean from a planning perspective, and how it would even be applied was one that was a concern. So that 90-day date, which was September 5th, came and went, and uh, Trump has tweeted that he is happy with the progress with Mexico so far, but then there's just no other guidance from there. So companies are left to wonder if there is potential tariffs related to their transactions with third and intercompany transactions in Mexico, but it's one that's on the watch for, but I would say from a transfer pricing and a, let's say tax director and even a CFO perspective, it's one that companies are planning for the worst case doomsday scenario, where if tariffs are applied, um, they have a game plan in place. When we switch over to China, China's a little different. Um, that has been an all-on trade war. Um, it's been going back and forth uh, since over a year now. And we've had a slight reprieve because we were gonna have some additional tariffs come into play in October. But right now, you know, the progress since we talked in December is We've had the list one through three tariffs increase to 25%. We had this list four that came out and list 4A uh, went to 15% as of September 1st and list 4B is due out um, in December. What this means is companies, particularly for list four, are the ones that are in the retail space, consumer market companies, where many of those companies already have tariffs that are applying to them and now they have an additional cost which means companies are really taking a step back and thinking about changing their operating model. And oftentimes, this is where they're gonna be concerned from the transfer pricing perspective, because sometimes an operation or a company may make changes to their operating model, but not involve the tax team, or not think about the transfer pricing implications, where if they do make a change, it actually may help from a tariff perspective, but it could cause potentially double taxation, potential exposure for transfer pricing, or other challenges that the tax team would see. So this is where, again, the importance of having a global view is critical here. And it's not only of China and Mexico, but it's also what may happen in the future related to digital tax, because we're talking about potential retaliatory tariffs from a, a French perspective, where we might be taxing French wine because of the digital tariffs. And this is where, when companies are planning, um, they need to involve the tax teams the transfer pricing teams as they're thinking through things because oftentimes with the tariff mitigation strategies, there also can be some benefits when they look at the tax attribute planning and, and the transfer pricing policies. So this is where transfer pricing can play a key role 
in the war on tariffs. Back to you, Lily. Thanks, Chris. And we're actually going to get to digital tax in just a minute. But first, Paige, I'm coming back to you with number two on our list, which is recent transfer pricing court cases, another area of continuing uncertainty. Can you give us an update on recent activity? Sure, Lily. So as you know, we have very few and infrequent litigation in the area of transfer pricing. And, and really when we do have litigation, it tends to be on methodological approaches or regulatory interpretation of the arm's length standard. And this year we've had uh, two cases come out on similar areas. Um, the first is Altera. On June 7th, the Ninth Circuit issued their final opinion which was uh, the same opinion they had issued in July 18 that had been withdrawn due to the death of one of the judges. But the opinion basically validated the Section 482 regulations for the inclusion of stock options uh, in a cost-share arrangement. And, you know, this is very important uh, because it uh, is contrary to the tax court opinion, which uh, had found that it was not required. And so, for those companies in the Ninth Circuit, this raises significant issues because of how they may have interpreted the tax court opinion relative to their case. And it also raises issues for companies outside of the Ninth Circuit who, you know, now have, you know, a differing view. But, uh, you know, in terms of the status of that opinion, Altera has filed a petition for an en banc rehearing, and there were amicus briefs that were also filed in support of that. But as a result, the IRS withdrew their directive to basically not audit that issue in cost sharing, which was you know, withdrawn on a national basis. So I think we'll be seeing you know, a renewed uh, flurry of activity around um, the audits in that area. The other case that we had was Amazon. Um, and on August 16th, the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the U.S. tax court's decision in Amazon. And this opinion was around the definition of intangible property in the transfer pricing regulations. And specifically, Amazon had argued that in terms of a buy-in, you would not need to include the value of assets such as uh, goodwill. And now we know that you know, the, the new tax law has changed the definition of intangibles to include all broad types of assets, including you know, workforce employees uh, and goodwill and so forth. So it's um, is now in the law that that is the definition of intangible. But this is important because for those prior years, that would change how companies uh, who had controversy in this area, you know, that they, they have uh, support for the position of excluding that. So those are the two important cases, and, and they are relevant um, somewhat retroactively in some cases, but certainly a lot of thinking through that will still happen with companies as they work through, you know, their tax provisions and work through, you know, historic audit cycles. Thank you for that controversy update, Paige. What should no longer come as a surprise to our listeners is that the unknown future of international tax or digitization is number one on our list. Joseph, more has been revealed since our December podcast. Can you give us an update on the latest developments and further some business concerns that clients should consider? Happy to do so, Lily. So let's start quickly with a recap. So what has happened since December. In January, OECD and G20 Inclusive Framework issued a draft proposal that focused on two issues, as they call them pillars. The first one focused on where tax should be paid and on what basis, called as nexus. And within the same first uh, question and pillar, the second 
subsequent question was allocation of profits to jurisdictions with clients or users. And then separately, the second pillar is focusing on what should be the minimum global level of tax paid by multinational enterprises. So let's look at subsequent steps what happened later. So public consultation was held in March. Next in May, OECD and G20 inclusive framework agreed on program of work that laid out uh, in more detail the process for reaching the agreement as well as laying out options that they are pursuing, especially relating to pillar one. And with all of this, this is now culminating to next uh, paper that will be published by OECD. It was just announced on Wednesday this week that in early October, ahead of the meeting of a group of uh, 20 finance ministers of uh, G20, uh, they'll be issuing this additional paper that will provide further uh, guidance on the work uh, that Working Party 1 and Working Party 6 have completed since May. So few observations to share. Uh, the strategies set by G20 finance ministers and their senior advisors. It is not set by OECD or Working Party 6 and Working Party 1 of the uh, Inclusive Framework Group. The Working Party 6 and Working Party 1 are involved in uh, developing technical solutions based on the strategy set by the finance ministers and their senior advisors. What does it mean? Uh, it means that really the, the agenda is really political more than really technical. Technical uh, is really just a component to resolve the questions that the political side of the spectrum will, will pose uh, to, to this working program. Uh, relating to pillar one, we understand that the three options for allocation of income will be reduced to one based on uh, discussions we've had uh, since May, we understand that this very likely will be distributor plus based model. Uh, the formula to attribute the additional profit to the country under this model will be a safe harbor for a country, but not for the taxpayer. So what that means is that a country could argue for more profit if they choose to do so, but uh, such right will require arbitration agreement and uh, multilateral instruments and changes to the treaties to ensure that counter jurisdictions uh, can be involved to eliminate double taxation. So this will be a big concern if the formula and resulting allocation of the profit is optional or safe harbor for the country. Uh, and if the country can opt out, unless we have multilateral instrument to prevent double taxation to compel other countries to provide relief, it could definitely uh, create uh, significant issues for all of the multinational companies. Uh, there will be still in the pillar one new definition for Nexus. How it will be determined, we understand that there are three approaches that are being uh, considered. Uh, the first one is simple based on purely financial numbers. So imagine that uh, sale in excess of X dollars or euros uh, in country uh, where the company doesn't have any presence can trigger a nexus. There could be a second approach, uh, which is more technical, driven more by users or data. Uh, it's unclear how that would really, what definitions for user or data would be uh, and uh, how they would apply to determine the nexus. The third option is uh, a combination of the one and two. So it may be uh, some threshold based on financial numbers combined with some technical uh, definition of what sales uh, based on user or data may be a, uh, applicable or not, right? So 
again, there are a number of important technical questions here. What is the sales? What is the location of sales? What is the definition of nexus? Whose nexus is it? How profit will be attributed to that nexus? That, that we will still need to wait to, to find out. There definitely is, uh, there are some ideas how this could be implemented via additional withholding tax and then uh, having companies to allocate costs against that withholding to then calculate the final income. I, I find it a little bit troubling, these approaches where even today in, in the world where we have intercompany service charges, where foreign jurisdictions typically disallow them if companies cannot produce voluminous evidence of how those services specifically provide support to the business activities and revenue of the local country. If we have a withholding tax mechanism to implement this nexus profit allocation and allocation of expenses to calculate the actual taxable amount, I can see a lot of controversy arising from those solutions. Finally, on the pillar two, the minimum global level of tax, there is still at the political level within the G20 uh, question whether the analysis should be done at the aggregate level, meaning the overall effective tax rate of the multinational enterprise, or whether the testing of the minimum tax paid should be done on a country-by-country basis. As far as we know today, the political pressure is for country-by-country basis. So what that means for companies, this could be quite complex and uh, really challenging to administer and implement and could, again, lead to double taxation. What if uh, a country that supplies product is operating at a loss? It will have low tax rate. The country that uh, purchases those uh, products for resale in country-by-country testing could argue that uh, low tax means there should be potentially allocation of more income, even if income doesn't exist in there. So obviously, there will be all of these uh, nuances and uh, uh, considerations that still will need to be sorted out. Unfortunately, we have political, as I mentioned, body that sets the questions, and then we have OECD inclusive framework that only is focused on solving technical solutions. So what I would encourage all of the companies out there is get engaged, uh, talk to the finance ministers, make sure you understand what their mindset is and understanding of what questions they are designing here for the inclusive framework to technically resolve and ensure that they understand all of these complexities that can arise from some of the choices that are being made today. Thank you, Joseph. As we have heard, there continues to be pressure on the arm's length standard, threat of double tax, and expectation for more controversy on the U.S. and global stage in the future. Be sure to tune in for our next episode on country updates, including India and Hong Kong, and an entire episode devoted to developments in digitization. Thank you, and back to you, Dana. Thank you, Lily, Paige, Chris, and Joseph, and thank you to our listeners. If you have any questions regarding this podcast, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode on pwc.com forward slash tptalks. Thank you. Thank you.